searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern me going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Matthew 13, verses 10 to 17. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of the Messiah. You will ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they, they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their eyes, sorry, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And our last reading this morning comes from Luke 15, verses 11 to 32, the parable of the lost son. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the youngest son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, 
His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the flattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother came angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property and prostitutes, comes home, you kill the flattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Lord, May your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Thank you, Lyndall. We sing together, joyful, joyful, we adore you, God of glory, God of love. Lord God, we pray that you administer to us now in the words that are spoken, that between what is said, what is spoken from the pulpit and our ears, you may make this message something which is relevant to us, something which we understand, something which challenges us, something in which we know you are speaking to us. So come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Speak your voice, for we, your children, are listening. Amen. I love the parables that Jesus told. There are many of them that I can almost tell you word for word. They are beloved stories. They are the staple diet of Sunday school lessons. And when I went through Sunday school, there used to be the old flannel graph board. Do you remember that thing? And they would have parable sections and you would stick Jesus and the lost sheep and all the rest of it into these things. Parables are the, the staple activity for kids coloring in packs when the minister's sermon is long and boring. And, uh, and they love it. The stories of Jesus. We all have our favorite. But if we're honest, the fact that Jesus was a storyteller causes us to follow him for some other reasons as well. One of which is that we don't always understand what his stories mean. There is something in them that compels us, that calls us, that holds us, that engages us, that enlightens us, that teaches us, that, that makes us grapple with it every time we read them. These are living stories. 
I said when I began that I can recite many of the parables by heart, but the truth is there's probably many more that I can't because there are some parables that are downright weird. They're really strange. I mean, despite studying them, preaching on them, writing assignments on them, there are still parables that, that I don't have a definitive grasp of. I don't have it neatly wrapped up. I haven't got a nice explanation all wonderfully squared away in my mind. Because unfortunately, Jesus may have been a great storyteller, but he left the vast majority of his stories unexplained. It's always been interesting to me that when we come to church, ministers take so much time to explain and elaborate on the scriptures and have it all neatly wrapped up in a, in a three points and the conclusion kind of a sermon. That's not how Jesus preached. He told these wild and crazy stories with no apparent meaning. And, and the more you think about them, the more confused you actually get. But maybe that's the point. Maybe that's what he was going for. Let me have a look at one of these stories, one of the, one of the more well-known ones. I'll, I'll tell it in a slightly different way. Once upon a time, there was a, a very rich man who got word that his manager was stealing from him. So he summoned the little weasel for an audit. And he said to him, what's this I hear? Come and show me the books. And the man said, boss, I would like nothing more than to show you the books. But before I do, I need to do a few calculations. The little man thinks to himself, I'm too proud to beg. I'm too weak to work. I don't want to steal. What am I going to do? I've got an idea. I'll call in all of my master's debtors and I'll knock down their debts for them. That way they'll be so grateful that when the master fires me because he's surely going to fire me, I can go to them for help. And so the great swindle begins. And the shrewd manager calls each of the debtors in and says, you owe the master $1,000. Why don't we make it $250? How do you like that? Would that suit you a little bit better? And of course it does. And so huge sums of money are written off. But then comes the day of judgment. And now this little wretch of a man will get what his thievery deserves. And so this dishonest manager presents the, the cooked books to the, to the master. And the master says to him, You, you genius. Wow, what wonderful initiative. What commercial creativity. What innovative bookkeeping. I wish all my people were as smart in looking after their future. How confusing is that? And what kind of a savior would tell a story like that to people like this? And he really told that story. Go look it up in Luke chapter 16, the parable of the shrewd manager. Or the Good Samaritan, where a man gets knocked and beaten on the way from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho, left to die like a dog in the ditch. Along comes a priest who sees him walks across the other side. Secondly, along comes, just for laughs, let's call him a Methodist minister. And he looks and he says, well, this is none of my business. And he walks along on the other side. And here's this man in the ditch 
lost a lot of blood, time's running out, and with his last ounce of energy, he looks down the road hoping to see a, 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 a someone who would save him with the, the same kind of values, the same kind of compassion. And he looks down the road, and what does he see? The hated and despised, good-for-nothing, racially impure, theologically uninformed Samaritan. And his last hope is the person he hates the most in the world. What does he do? Well, he tears up his designer Armani suit, wraps up his wounds, he lays him on the leather seats of his Porsche, drives him to the nearest hospital, leaves all of his credit cards with the cashier and says, take what you need. Fix this man up. Spare no expense in getting him right. And then Jesus says, go and do the same. Is this a joke? Is it a joke? I mean, parables are these punchy, strange little stories from everyday life. And, and uh, they're most peculiar in the way Jesus uses them to teach. Mark says he almost never taught without using parables. There's religious teachers who, if you ask them a question, will have things all neatly wrapped up in a good theological, general, high-sounding, serious, and uplifting response. Why couldn't Jesus do that? Instead, he goes to explain God with unexplainable stories. Most of them lack endings or, or any kind of immediate points. It's almost as if Jesus says that God is not met in generalities and abstractions. God is met in the stuff of day-to-day living. God is met in the tug and the pull of the ordinary. God is usually encountered, if the parables have it correct, in ways that are not self-evident or easily explained or have an uncontested meaning. What is God like? Jesus gets asked. Well, he's like a net that's thrown into the sea. And when the net is hauled in, there's all sorts of creatures, a good number of fish, but lots of rubbish as well. And the servants say, Master, do you want us to sort out the good fish from the bad? And he says, no, let's worry about the the culling of that on another day. But what a huge haul. And Jesus says, that's what God's like. Seriously? Are there any questions? Well, there's more questions than before we started asking. Now, 2,000 years later, we're still trying to figure out all of the stories. Can you imagine back then? They didn't get it either. It's almost as if Jesus is less concerned with giving out the right answers as he is with provoking more questions. Confusion is often the response to his story. Perhaps it's because the matters of God and the kingdom of God cannot be explained in a few minutes. Maybe Jesus is trying to do more than just make an intellectual point or parrot fashion share some knowledge. I mean, listen to, this, listen to this strange story. What is the, what is the purpose of this? We're a farmer who, who has a, a fig tree that won't bear fruit, and usually they bear fruit every uh, twice in a year. And he says, I'm going to cut it down. And, and the servant says, no, let me, let me water it and put some fertilizer on and then see what you can do with it. And that's that. God is that way. On his way to Jerusalem, Jesus throws out an even stranger one where he says, if a homeowner has 
sorry, if a homeowner had known what hour the thief would break in, do you think the homeowner would have slept so soundly? Who's the thief? God? I mean, what a funny way to characterize God. This thief who's going to break in and steal everything you've got and, and disappear into the night. It's not a very nice thing to say about God. And prayer? Jesus says, let me tell you a story about how prayer works. There's a scoundrel of a judge. And a woman goes before him to plead his case. And she shows up at his, and uh, she doesn't get anywhere. So what she does is she shows up at the judge's residence in the middle of the night and beats on his front door, screaming at the top of her lungs, help me and give me justice. And the judge says to himself, I couldn't care less about these old women and their plight, but in order to get this old duck out of my hair, I will get up and give her what she demands. And Jesus says, praise like that. Seriously? Really? But here's the thing. Maybe the point of the parables is to be like a window through which we begin to see the heart of God. But when you look into a window, there is this definitive moment when you catch a reflection of your own face, when you begin to see yourself. Maybe the parables are a bit like that. Maybe we begin to see ourselves in the parables that Jesus tells. I mean, think about it. With whom did you identify in the opening parable of the shrewd manager? At first, your sympathy is probably with the little manager. Sure, stealing is not a, a virtuous thing, but you, who's going to sympathize with the rich boss? The manager's probably only getting back what the, the boss should have paid him in the first place. But then the swindle begins, and we learn just how lazy this loser is. And so we find ourselves cuddling up to the boss, saying, hey, don't you know what this guy is doing to your books? Don't you know how much money you're losing? You should really throw him out to the walls. But then when the judgment comes, and the dishonest manager stands before the boss, and we're gobsmacked when the boss says to him, you're an absolute business genius. This was the disreputable boss with whom we all identified. Makes me wonder about your ethics and mine. So here we are, rushing to and fro in the story, desperately trying to find one good person, trying to find a person like us that we can identify with, the character with, with whom we relate. But in the end, we're frustrated by the realization that actually they're all terrible. Everybody, high and low, rich and poor, they're all sleazy. Nobody's hands are clean, not even ours. We begin to see ourselves in the parables. What sort of teacher would tell a story like this to people like us? We tell stories all the time to try and make sense of the world, to try and uh, speak and uncover deep and real truths of things. We can't live without stories in the world. We like to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Jesus isn't interested in stories like that. His stories are not meant to explain. They're meant to challenge. And it frustrates us, just as it frustrates his first hearers. Somebody from the early service said to me when we were having morning tea, said, you know, I hate the parables because none of them have a nice ending. They don't wrap up. I like my stories to end nicely. 
They frustrate us. Lyndall read earlier for us the disciples saying to Jesus, why do you talk in parables? And Jesus says, I tell you these stories so that you can hear things that you would not ordinarily hear. Begin to understand things that you wouldn't normally understand. You see, the stories that we hear, the understanding of them is not an intellectual achievement of ours. It's a gift from God. God reveals to things, things to us we wouldn't ordinarily hear or think of. And He takes us deeper. Deeper in our thinking about the world. Deeper in our thinking about God. You and I live in an age where we think we know everything. And what we don't know, we can very easily get to know just by uh, Googling something on our phone. In a few seconds, we can find out any information we need. The stories of Jesus challenge that mindset by saying, actually, you don't know everything there is to know about God. You can't put Him into a box. You can't think that you have Him all figured out. We can't think about God the same way we think of everything else. Maybe the, maybe the point of these stories is just that. And we come to Scripture and we think, we've got it. I understand it. When we read the parables, we realize, actually, we haven't got it. We haven't got God at all. But God's got us. And therein is the beauty. God has got us. There are so many books that try and make sense of God, try to make Him easy to understand. Most of them try and make Him palatable to fit in with our own outlook on life, which usually means that we, we like to think of God just as if He's like me. God's like me on a good day. The storyteller Jesus lets us know beyond any shadow of a doubt that I don't have a handle on God, but He's got a handle on me. He's got a hold on me. And that's enough. And because of that, even these sometimes contradictory and confusing and exasperating and frustrating stories can become well-loved favorites because we know that God is not controlled by us. God is not explained by us. God is not tamed by us. But He is God with us. Story by story, Jesus moves us from the safe and secure place that we thought we knew to another world where things don't turn out like we expect. In the stories of, of Jesus, we disconnected from an old familiar world and connected to the kingdom of God. This new world where God turns out different from what we expect. What does he turn out to be like? What is he trying to tell me? What's he trying to tell you? What's he trying to do with us? Well, perhaps that's best told by Jesus in what I think is the best story he told, the prodigal son. This is what he says when, when he's asked, what is God like? He says, well, a man had two sons. And the younger one says, Father, give me all my inheritance. In other words, Dad, Drop dead. That's what it means. Drop dead. That's what I want. And so the father does just that. Gives him everything. And out in the far country, Jesus says that the boy engages in loose living. And loose living, he doesn't elaborate on. That's a phrase you can make up in your mind what that is. It can be anything. Jesus doesn't supply that information. 
with all the money wasted on whatever loose living he had done, the young man was reduced to the level of a pig, slopping swill into the trough as he feeds the pigs around him. And he wakes up one morning, probably with a hangover and empty pockets, and he says, he comes to himself, and he says, wait a minute, I don't have to starve here, I have a father, I have a home. And he turns towards home, and he's, he's even written this cute little speech for the occasion. Now look, Dad, before you start yelling at me, Dad, let me explain. I mean, um, I've sinned, and I'm unworthy to be called your son. You can treat me like one of your hired servants. But the father isn't interested in the speeches. Save that for something else, he says. Come in, come in, and I will show you how to party. I will show you a real celebration, a real party. Which is why the story has been a shocker for us. Because we think that Jesus has come to, to uh, crank up the ethical standards, to put a bit more muscle into our moral fiber. But here at the homecoming of this no good son, God throws a party. It isn't what we expect. We want the Father to be gracious, sure, but not too much. Not too much. Homecomings are fine, but he has to pay for what he's done. It's okay if he comes home with a sense of repentance in his sackcloth and ashes, not in his, his uh, fancy shoes and tucks that the Father has given him. And our question is the same as that of the older brother. Is it right to throw a party for this prodigal? It's a parable about a party thrown by a father for a prodigal who squandered everything. And Jesus, in telling the story, funnily enough, spends more verse describing the party than he does anything else. To put it into context, one day Jesus' critics said to him, this man eats and drinks parties with sinners. What kind of a savior is he? And you'd expect Jesus to back off saying, well, you know, I'm going to redeem these prostitutes. I'm going to help these tax collectors and straighten them up and be responsible like, like you and me. But that's not what he says. He says, God loves to party with these people. He loves to eat with the tax collectors, to be with the sinners. And tells them of a party when a woman finds a lost coin. And a big bash when a shepherd finds a lost sheep. And an all-out, absolute blowout of a party for a prodigal son. In the return of the wayward country, it's almost as if Jesus says to the whole of Israel who are in exile, longing for a return, come home, join the kingdom of God. Here is the party. But then we see the, the older brother who comes walking along with his piousness and sense of, uh, of uh, you know, fun police, the guy who's been in charge of, of moral behavior. And he won't go into the party. And so his nostrils are flared and, the, and he's, he's uh, looking at the father with indignation and says, how can you be doing this? What a low-life son. And you do all of this for him. Don't you know that we are busy here? Don't you know that he's blown your money on, on prostitutes? Do you notice that the only person who mentions prostitutes is actually the brother? Jesus never says it. The son never says it. 
but in his self-righteousness. He says it. He says it. The older brother says, look how good I am. Look how obedient I am. And he refuses to go in to the party. Here's the incredible part of the story. The father goes out to him. So, number one, the father runs out to meet the son who is coming back from the wayward country. And the son who refuses to go into the party because he's self-righteously pious, the father goes out to him too, willing to miss the first dance in order to try and bring that sense of family back in. The father is the character in the story. The running father, running to meet the son, running to bring in the son who refuses to come in. He's the most interesting character because he produces this extravagant, excessive love for both of his children. It's a hopeful and joyous story. A hopeful story of a homecoming for all of us who have been caught in the depths of sin and darkness. But it's also a warning for each of us who would sit and sulk in the dark instead of coming into the party. Jesus says, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. Come in and celebrate. Be part of this family. The Bible doesn't ever ask, is there a God? The Bible's question is, who is the God who is there? And John says, nobody has ever seen God until you've seen the God of this parable. God is this long-suffering parent waiting for the young son to come home when good times go bad. He's the, the father who pleads with the older boy to come in and hug his brother and resume the party with him and make merry. The stories claim that God is the, the parent who refuses to stop silently waiting and earnestly pleading. It collides with the modern understanding that we have that our lives are our own and we can do whatever we want with them. The story says, no, no, you are owned, you are sought, you are loved, you are held by God. I love the fact that Jesus doesn't have an ending for the story. We're never told if the younger brother grows up and sorts himself out. We're never told if the older brother ever loosens up and joins the party. We're never told that they all live happily ever after. I sincerely doubt it. He doesn't end the story because it's the kind of story that you're supposed to end yourself. And whether you know it or not, you're ending it even now. In your head, you're thinking of the ending that you would like to see. The question is, which one of the brothers are you? Are you the one who's coming in from the outside or are you the one outside who refuses to go in the one who says I'm righteous enough look at all of these unrighteous whichever one it is and maybe we're sitting in the party already the story is for each of us it names you it claims you it invites you to see yourself in it it prods you it it speaks to you it blesses you and says to us sooner or later the father will have you the Father will have you. He will keep going out to you. 
in the psalm that Lyndall read for us, a psalm that Jesus knows. He enacts it in his life. Oh Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You search out my path and my lying down. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? In Jesus, the storyteller, we realize we've already been found. Amen.